This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What happens when children who survive a school shooting grow up and have kids of their own? That's the reality for students who were at Columbine High School 20 years ago. Today, the first episode of Since Columbine, a new podcast from CPR News. Nathaniel Miner has our story. Brianna, put a cold pack in there for me, babes. Amy Over is a bubbly, 30-something stay-at-home mom. (laughs) When we first meet, it's at her house in the Denver suburbs. She smiles a lot, and especially when she talks about her kids. She remembers so many details of their big milestones, like her daughter Bree's first day of preschool. It started out great. It was a nice day. It was a nice morning. Um... She had her cute little backpack on and her hair perfect and in little bows, and she looked like she was really excited. Bree led the way up the sidewalk to the school, her parents a few steps behind. Amy took her picture and gave her a hug. And then it was time for Bree to go inside. Once I actually left her, I was just like, oh, oh my God. Like, I, I, just this crippling fear. She felt like the walls were closing in. Her husband took her to the hospital. It was a panic attack. Uh, I felt like I was having a heart attack. Those started that day and stayed with me for a long time. It was a really dark time. This is Since Columbine, a podcast from Colorado Public Radio. We're taking a look at how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. In this first episode, what happens when survivors of a school shooting send their own children to school? For survivor parents like Amy Over, the events of that April morning 20 years ago are still part of their lives, sometimes in ways they never saw coming. In 1999, Amy was about to graduate high school. She was nervous about where she was going to go to college. And then on April 20th, good news. Her coach, Dave Sanders, told her she'd gotten a basketball scholarship. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go play basketball and everything's great. And then I go down to lunch and that's when I heard the first gunshots. She dove under a table. And then her coach, the same one that had just given her the news about the scholarship, shouted at her and other students to get out, to find cover. She doesn't remember how she got home, but her mom does. She said, I walked in and I was a shell of a person. She gave me a big hug and I I just went straight to my room and she said I went to sleep. Amy had nightmares. She knew one of the shooters. And she got really mad. Coach Sanders was killed in the attack. She took her anger out on her mom. She wouldn't let her comfort her. You know, you don't know what I went through. But now as a mom, I'm like, gosh, she must have been just horrified. Had to have been the worst day of her life. I met Amy's family on a recent weekday morning as they got ready for school. Her son Mason, like any good six-year-old, loves sugary cereal. Why do you like Lucky Charms? Her daughter Bree is a little bleary-eyed. She's 13 years old, 7th grade. I go to a performing arts school, and I'm a competitive dancer, so I dance every day. The Over family lives in Parker, just down the highway from Columbine. Amy and her husband Curtis have made a quiet suburban life there. But that life took time to build. Amy's years after high school were rough. Her anxiety kept her away from people. It made her physically ill. 
I was a hot mess. Literally a mess. And then she met Curtis. And he kind of swooped me up and took care of me, and he is my rock. Their personalities complement each other. Where Amy is boisterous, Curtis is quieter. He says Amy's experience at Columbine has always been in the background of their relationship. And it wasn't about this thing. It was just, you know, that was part of what she brought, you know, and I had my stuff that I brought. But, you know, we fell in love, and that was that. Amy learned to work through her anxiety. She went to therapy and took up kickboxing. But one question always hung over her head. When should she talk about Columbine with her daughter? And she worried about that for years. And Bree, Bree's a smart, perceptive kid. She knew her mom was keeping something from her, something big. I've always been curious, and I asked her, like, what happened? I always knew something. I don't know, I just had that gut feeling. I didn't really tell you about Columbine until you were 11 years old. But prior to that, you knew every April I would go to the school. And you would always ask, why Why are you going there? And I was like, well, Mommy went through something, and, and uh, this is a, a s- sad day for Mommy, and, and this is, um, you know, someday I'll share it with you. Amy didn't want to take away her daughter's peaceful ignorance. Bree likes school. Amy didn't want her to be afraid of it. The right day to tell Bree finally came two years ago, on the anniversary of the shooting. That morning, Bree told her mom she wanted to go with her to the school. So they walked the halls together. Amy showed Bree where Coach Sanders died, where she heard the first gunshots, where she hid under a table. And then um, we went to the Columbine Memorial. And she got to see how beautiful it was and uh, how peaceful. And she just read all of the quotes and kind of took everything in. Bree was just a preteen at the time. And this whole event, it was a lot for her to process. But in the moment, she was only thinking about her mom. I could tell that she was struggling and I just gave her a hug because I didn't know how to support her. Because I've been through certain types of trauma, but not mass trauma. And, like, I just didn't know how to support her. It felt like uh, I finally had this secret that I could, I don't know, it's like sharing it with my best friend or something that I finally was able to kind of take a deep breath. And I finally she knows. Amy still deals with depression, especially every April as the anniversary comes around. But moments like that hug help Amy to manage her anxiety. She says she doesn't have panic attacks anymore. And now she's more prepared to have a similar conversation with her six-year-old son, Mason, when the time comes. Amy isn't the only Columbine survivor dealing with issues like this. Missy Mendo of Lakewood just became a mom, too. The theme of her nursery is mermaids, so come on in. It's, it's pretty awesome. Missy's daughter, Ellie, is less than a year old. She's just waking up from a nap. Say hello. Ooh. Amy and Missy are both members of a group called The Rebels Project, They travel around and get to know survivors of other shootings. Their first trip together was last year to Paducah, Kentucky, the site of another school shooting. Missy said the trip got a little overwhelming, but Amy was there to say, hey, slow down. 
she was like, you are a new mom. You have to pace yourself. If you need a mental break, you take a mental break. If you are feeling tired, if your back hurts, if your feet are swelling, you need to check in with yourself. Missy has some of the same questions and concerns that Amy did, all shaped by Columbine. When I became pregnant, the first five minutes, you are so happy, you're excited, this is what you've wanted, and then immediately I think, what am I going to tell my kid? What do you tell them, and when, and what do you leave out? And I feel like those are probably going to be things I'm going to ask Amy when the time comes, too. And that's the flip side to a shooting that traumatized so many people. We have each other, and there's no one better to understand than a survivor, you know? There's no one better to walk you through these steps than someone who who understands what you're going through. Amy's daughter, Bree, is a busy middle schooler. When she's not dancing or doing homework, she's gotten involved with the movement to prevent gun violence. Last spring, Bree and Amy went to the March for Our Lives demonstration in Denver. The shooting in Parkland, Florida motivated Bree, and so did her mom's story. She's so sympathetic and empathetic to others, and watching her um, was just powerful. But the poor thing was so exhausted at the end of the day. She was like, Mom, I don't feel right. It's a feeling I've never felt before. It's just like, from my gut, I was just drained. I remember her crying at at the rally. She's like, I can't believe that people have gone through so much pain and heartache. And and then she asked me the question, is this going to happen to me? You know, as you just say, no, you know, the chances of that are really slim, but she has that in the back of her mind, you know, that what if, what if this could happen to me? Amy thinks about that too. She knows this is the world that exists now. She was there at Columbine when it was created. We're going to have to haul ass to school. (laughs) We're in the car. Amy and Bree talk about dinner plans and an upcoming dance test. We pull up to the school. Put your phone away. Do you have your lunch? Yeah. Bye, babe. I love you. Thank you. See ya. Have a good day. Twenty years after that April morning, Amy doesn't have to carry the weight of her experiences alone. It's still hard for her, but now her family's there to help. Bree grabs her backpack and jumps out. Then she turns as Amy watches from the car and heads into school. CPR's Nathaniel Minor and our new podcast, Since Columbine. It continues later this week with what we've learned about mass shooters, the way their minds work, and how to stop them. I've identified 43 perpetrators of shootings or other types of mass attacks who have cited uh, Columbine in one way or another. 43 perpetrators. Yes. And there have been dozens of other people planning attacks who cited Columbine, but who were stopped. Since Columbine is available now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. There's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Morner. It has been a wet year so far in Colorado, but that follows nearly two decades of drought. Of course, what falls from the sky here affects many other states downriver and Mexico. We're going to put this wet spell into context with the woman who leads water policy in the state. Becky Mitchell is director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Hi, Becky. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. And so is Colorado's snowpack, 40 percent above normal. A state climatologist told CPR that Colorado could be drought free by the end of spring. But that doesn't mean the effects of drought just disappear. What lingers? Well, thanks for bringing that up. I think people start getting comfortable when they see the snow. And and I think it's important to recognize that nine out of 10 years, some part of the state is in drought. And so we see the lingering effects of that, especially when there is continued years of drought. So it takes sometimes more than one year to fill a reservoir back up. Um, Also, lands are fallowed or livestock is sold off. And um, in order to get that genetic makeup back, that takes time. And so there are impacts from that. Also, with drought often comes fire. And with that fire... um, or burn scars and watershed health issues and water quality issues. And that has an impact on tourism and recreation. And so the recovery is, is longer than we think. Okay. And it takes more than just a one wet spell to undo some of those effects. You talked about the time that is required to fill reservoirs back up. Why is that important? Help us understand that as water users in Colorado. Really, that's our water supply. So we don't take directly from that snowpack into the home. It usually has to go through a reservoir in some way, shape, or form. And so those reservoirs are there not only for water supply for that year, but also as um um, supply in a bank case, account. A bank account. A water exactly. bank account. Yeah. Exactly. It occurs to me that rain and snow can only get you so far, though, because NOAA says temperatures in our region have risen about two degrees in 30 years. So that presumably means that water gets uh, heated off. Uh, how does climate change complicate your job, which is to plan for water? Really, it, it really makes us have to focus more on being creative and managing our resources and making sure that we're prepared for these variable climate changes and or variable temperatures and changing precipitation patterns. And, um, and how do we how do we do that? So reservoir storage is going to be important, but also conservation. And how how do we um, change the the mindset of, of Okay, we're going to get into conservation in just a bit, because I think a lot of us living in Colorado today wonder what we should do about our long showers, for instance. But let me make this a bit more macro first. The Colorado River Basin includes six other states, and several of them are concerned about water shortages, not just because this is an arid region, but because of the climate change variability. And together, these states have put together a contingency plan, which has to be approved by Congress. Here is Senator Martha McSally of Arizona speaking just last week. The Colorado River is a lifeblood of the southwestern United States. 
the 1,450-mile-long river provides drinking water to 40 million Americans, irrigation for 5.5 million acres of farmland, and more than 4,000 megawatts of carbon-free hydropower to communities across the West. The DCP represents landmark grassroots collaboration that will allow the basin states and tribes to prepare for a water-scarce future without the federal government imposing a one-size-fits-all solution. The DCP, the Drought Contingency Plan, and their hope is to get it through Congress by the end of the month. Uh, Bring this home. What would Coloradans gain or lose in a deal like this? Well, it's it's really interesting. In times like this, the only way to solve it is collaboration. And that's what you've seen come out of these seven basin states coming together and saying, we have to look at this and say, what? how can we operate in a way that it is best for the 40 million people that are dependent on the Colorado River? So what the drought contingency plan does specifically um, and and taking it home to Colorado a little bit, is provides that planning process initially um, that brings all the partners together so we can look at the levels of Powell and Mead and... um, These are giant reservoirs. Giant reservoirs, but... um, And look at certain trigger points and how do we operate when we hit those trigger points. Okay, give me an example of a trigger point and what would have to happen as a result of one. So if you get too low, you um, hit the power pool mark. And it's important to recognize that um, we have power that's generated, clean power, from um, those reservoirs. Hydro. Hydropower. Okay. And um, and that generates revenues that funds many, many different types of programs. If we lose that power pool, there's going to be a lot of money that goes into um, the infrastructure because it'll be damaged. But then there's also um, money that's lost that doesn't go to important environmental programs. Um, there's the revenues generated from that hydropower um, has many good benefits. Oh, that's fascinating. In other words, if water levels are too low, you just can't generate the power anymore. Mm-hmm. And you risk hurting the infrastructure, like running an engine without oil. Almost. Yes. Okay. Uh, reservoirs and water compacts can feel, you know, awfully far from our faucets. So why don't we bring this to the kitchen or the bathroom sink uh, with a question from listener Ted Capron. He got in touch through Colorado Wonders. Given years of reduced water supplies in Colorado, why are state and local governments and environmental groups not encouraging voluntary water restriction? I try to conserve water myself. For example, I don't flush the toilet at night, (laughs) and we wash the cars only uh, when necessary in the summer, of course, much more in the winter. And I'm afraid that our grass at our place is not going to grow very green this year. You know, I really identify with Ted. I've lived in Colorado for a dozen years. I can't remember once anything more than lawn watering restrictions put on me. I mean, here we are in an arid place. We've talked about climate change. We don't necessarily act like it, Becky. Oh, well, I would disagree with that to some level. Okay. Um, and I thank Ted first for his, his conservation ethic. That is, um, it is helpful. But I um, oftentimes, I think that it's important to recognize some of what's out there that we don't see. So mm-hmm. we have the utilities that are offering rebates for um, inside installation of low-flow toilets or low-flow shower heads, things like that. Those make a difference. Um, while you see a bigger impact with the lawn watering, um, especially at times in the summer when it's hot and yeah. dry, um, there is there is an impact. Those interior changes are year-round. And so those make a difference. And it's important that um, that 
people do those. And we've seen big changes in the last 15 years. So something is shifting. And um, can we do more? I think we can. Um, So when I'm taking a long shower, should I feel guilty or do I expect that Denver Water is doing such a fine job conserving and reusing water that that's actually not where the concern should be? You absolutely should feel guilty, Ryan. Um, Remember, Denver Water is Denver Water. The the conservation starts with the people. Denver cannot um, conserve anything that's not conserved by the people. So um, it's important that we take that seriously and move from water customers to water stewards and really take um, the the impact on the resource, um, our personal impact on the resource seriously. I guess what I'm saying is that it's never felt terribly draconian. I mean, certainly the lawn watering can feel that way. Um, but I, I wonder if it if it should feel more draconian. You've got a lot of people here relocating from places where water's plentiful. You know, yeah that that's uh, <laughs> that's been, <laughs> that's been a bit of a problem. And that population increase is something that we're having to change how we manage our resource for. Well, thanks for not at all assuaging my guilt, Becky. (laughs) Appreciate it. (laughs) She's Becky Mitchell. She directs the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Joined us to talk about the state of water, especially as it's been wet recently. Okay, we're not usually thrilled to issue a correction, but I'm oddly giddy to share what we learned because of an error in an interview Friday about spacesuits and NASA's lack of one for a female astronaut, I said that American Sally Ride was the first woman in space when she went up in 1983. She was actually the first American woman. The first woman? That was Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova in 1963. Her call sign was Siegel. In this excerpt from a Russian TV documentary, you'll hear Tereshkova from her spacecraft chatting with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. All systems are working perfectly. I feel excellent. I can hear you very well. Your call signal is Eagle. But let me call you simply Valentina. Valentina, I'm very happy and proud that our girl, a girl from the Soviet Union, is the first woman to fly to space and to operate such cutting-edge equipment. Valentina Tereshkova was in orbit for two days, 22 hours, and 50 minutes. Today she is 82 years old. You have to be 18 to vote, but our next guest thinks there should be an exception, that in school board elections, 16- and 17-year-olds should be allowed to cast ballots. Kobe Penke is a junior at DSST Green Valley Ranch High School in Denver. He joined us ahead of a hearing tomorrow for a bill to make this change. One issue he's particularly concerned about at his school, funding for the theater program. Many of my peers are part of that program and was that they work day in day out to make sure each play is better than the last and I always hear that they're always complaining because there's not enough equipment that's going on for them to even go upon because some plays they really do need some equipment such as you know lightings or props but then we do have that lack of resources going towards them it's because they feel like the theater program as a whole isn't worth getting the funding towards and It's the teachers, it's the school administrators that's making these decisions. 
Uh, so how old are you, Kobe? So I am 17 years old. 17. Uh, here's the interesting thing. Yeah. If this bill passes, uh, the law wouldn't go into effect until 2021, uh, by which time you'd be old enough to vote in any election. So why is this important to you now if you won't be directly impacted? As much as it's not going to affect me, once if it does go in play in 2021, I have younger siblings, I have younger cousins who will be a part of this. You know, they'll be a part of this process where they're going to be able to vote for the person they feel like is going to represent them the most, who's going to listen to their voice, who's going to show them that leadership skill and then within their life. And so is that. I can only do as much as I can, not just for myself, but also for my little cousins, my family, and for the next generation. You have siblings. How old are your siblings? My little sibling is at age of nine, and then my younger brother is actually age 15. Okay, so you're thinking down the line about them. Uh, You know, of course, one argument against lowering the voting age for these election school board races is that 16 and 17-year-olds aren't ready for that kind of responsibility. How how would you respond, not just for yourself, though, Kobe, for for the young people you see around you, too? A couple weeks ago, we did a lobby day where we had over hundreds of students, not just from Denver, but also students from Colorado Springs, who really care about this issue, who really feel like... They need to make a stand and have a voice. And so we came down to the Capitol and we talked to our legislators, our representatives, to help support this bill. And so is that. That's where I see that we are mature enough if we really do care about this. And for me, maturity is not based on age, but it's based on experiences. And then for me, for my experience, I could definitely say that we are mature enough, we are responsible enough to make this happen. Uh, I wonder if some of you were young enough that you had to have your parents drive you to the Capitol. Uh, some of our parents do drive us, and that's because it's not just 16, 17-year-olds who are at this Capitol. We also have people from age 14 and 15 to also come and support, because this is going to be a part of their life as they continue high school. And so is that is that, of course, some students have to have their parents drive them, but then most of the students themselves, uh, we could drive ourselves. We are responsible enough to be there on our own to take our own time to make this happen. Now, sometimes teachers or principals have to be strict with a student, you know, and kids don't always like that. Could young people use this to get back in some larger way at their district? Do you know what I mean? Like if you have beef (laughs) with DPS. (laughs) If you have any type of negative relationship with the school board administrator or your teachers, this is not something to get back at them, but this is a chance to show ourselves that we could find something in common because as we know is that our administrator and our teacher, they're allowed to vote. And so if students are allowed to vote too, maybe this open a new door for a new relationship where we could talk about politics and understand each other's differences. And so with this, I feel like this is going to be a new opportunity to restart relationships and grow as a whole. I wonder if part of you sees this as almost like voting training wheels, Uh, you know, that this might be a way to kind of prime young people for the bigger elections to come in their lives. Yeah, that's totally what I'm trying to say is that, you know, once we're going to be given this access to be able to learn how to vote responsibly as students starting at age 16, 17, you know, we have our teachers, we have civics classes. And with that, that could really teach us how to vote how to vote responsibly. And then with that, we're going to see an increase of now we're going to be the young adults voting once we are 18. We already have this training to do such a thing for a bigger election. Okay, Kobe, I'm going to put you on the spot. 
Can you name uh, some of the current members of the Denver School Board? So we have Jennifer Bacon, of course, one all-time supporters of students. And then we have, we have many others. Um, now, I'll admit that there were three school board members I couldn't name. I had to look it up. But, you know, I think someone listening might think, well, here's the most involved young person in this effort, and he can't name the Denver School Board. This is exactly why something like this is risky. So, going back to what you're saying is, of course, I don't know every school board member. However, I do know enough to say that if we are given the right to vote, you know, maybe we'll pay more attention to these type of elections. Maybe you see more students paying more attention to who's running and who's actually representing us as a community. Kobe, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Are you nervous about testifying? Oh, uh, of course not. I okay. think the testifying is <laughs> that would be one of the greatest experiences. Ever, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, thanks for being with us. Of course. Thank you for this opportunity. It means a lot. Kobe Penke is a student at DSST Green Valley Ranch High School in Denver. Tomorrow, he'll testify in favor of a bill to lower the voting age in school board elections to 16. <laughs> Pioneering Women in the Workplace are the focus of a new show at History Colorado. It's called Women Work Justice. Denver's first tenured black teacher is among the women featured. And today, Marie Greenwood is 106. We caught up with her just before she turned 105. CPR education reporter Jenny Brandine invited Greenwood to visit the first school she attended in Denver, Maury Middle School. When Marie Greenwood rolls into the school, the principal greets her with a joke. You're returning a library book today for us? Is that, that would be a pretty hefty fine. I was born in 1912, so all you gotta do is make this subtraction. With eyes bright and expressive, her words sharp, witty, and warm. Oh, this is fascinating. Her son James rolls Greenwood into the old Maury gym, and her face lights up. These are no slow cranking gears of memory. Greenwood goes back instantly, 92 years ago, a young girl in a gym outfit from 1925, a wool skirt, leggings, a white shirt and tie. We had ropes that came down, and boy, I could really climb those ropes faster than anybody. (laughs) For one of the first times in my life, this was the one place where I felt absolutely free. In the classrooms, it was another story because there was that feeling of discrimination. But when I was here... That was it. Greenwood's world opened up in sports. She taught herself how to swim from library books and practice breathing underwater in the sink at home. Maury School had a pool. With all these girls wanting me to do everything and wanting me to swim with them, that was great. And then the principal let me know. She couldn't swim in the pool because she was black. She says the incident spurred her on. It got me out of some of that shyness and made me say, I'm going to prove that I can be the best. And from then on, that's what I did. We head into the auditorium. Greenwood doesn't remember it being this massive. And look, there's a ramp over there. Oh, this is, mm-hmm. 
Boy, I'm glad to see this. Good gravy. It was in this auditorium she met a group of black girls, some she stayed friends with for 70 years. Greenwood also reminisces about discriminatory behavior from a social studies teacher who liked to embarrass her when she didn't know an answer and never called on her when she did. Greenwood outsmarted her. I could look stupid as could be, knew the answer. She'd call on me, bingo. Or I could wave my hand, you know, had no idea what was going on. And then the teacher would ignore her, letting Greenwood save face. But the centenarian fondly remembers others, like the math teacher who helped her after school until finally... I got it. Greenwood began excelling. The teacher gave her a compliment she remembers to this day. He told me I had a mathematical mind. And you know what, she says? He was right. I'm still doing my own finances. <laughs> She's lived by all kinds of aphorisms. If you aim for the stars, you're at least you're going to hit the treetops. As a teenager, the stars were still a long way off. She wasn't allowed to play sports or join clubs. A school administrator told her not to bother with college because she'd be cleaning houses. Greenwood replied she was going to college. Then she went into the bathroom and cried. I pounded on the walls and I said, I am... I'm going to show them. And she did. Fortunately, her family moved, and she enrolled in West High, where the principal didn't tolerate discrimination. That was my salvation. She graduated third in her class, won a scholarship, and went on to teacher's college. In 1935, Denver Public Schools hired her as a first-grade teacher. Three years later, she was the first teacher of color to get tenure. I had two goals keep that job, and keep the door open for others to come in. She later became the first black teacher in an all-white school, raised a family, skied a lot, and camped all over the West. But Greenwood calls teaching the love of her life. And it's a love she likes to talk about. Well, you see, you get me wound up. I'm like the Energizer bunny. I just go on and on and on and on and on. (laughs) I can't just answer your question and quit. (laughs) But Marie Greenwood also has things to do, crossword puzzles and Jeopardy games, and children to sing with at a pre-birthday celebration. I'm Jenny Brundine, Colorado Public Radio News. If black people would talk to white people, we would be better people all around. Marie Greenwood, the first black tenured teacher in Denver. She's now 106 and is featured in the new exhibit, Women Work Justice, at the Center for Colorado Women's History. It's based at the Byers-Evans House in Denver. That exhibit runs for the next year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I could read stories all day about Angie Cavallari's childhood. She grew up in Florida. Her family owned mobile home parks with names like Placid Lakes, Pelican, and Chalet. Many of the mobile homes were rentals. So Angie had the sometimes filthy job of cleaning up after tenants. But Angie also developed close ties with the residents. She now lives in Denver, and her new book is called Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. Angie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're so careful to point out that no one in the mobile home park business uses the term trailer. Yet you call your book Trailer Trash. Yes. Why? Well, there was two reasons. It was literally trailer trash. It was one of the jobs that I had in addition to snaking toilets and mowing lawns. But um, Was to remove trash from 
the mobile home park. Yeah, it was it was waste management services. We did that ourselves. My parents in Chapter 10, um, the title is actually waste management. <laughs> and my parents did not want to pay those fees. So me, my brother, my sister, and my mom all picked up trash, like went to these metal trash cans and took the trash out. So it wasn't just it wasn't just taking out the trash. It was taking it all the way to the dump. This is literal trailer <laughs> trash. Yes. And what would you find in that trash that maybe gave you some insight into the residents? Um, well, you try not to look. Um, most of the time you held your nose and you try not to look too closely at the trash. I only really noticed it if they never used a bag. Some people would throw old food, um, old pans of grease that had caught on fire directly into the trash can, no bag, nothing. It drove me crazy. <laughs> okay, so that's one reason you use this term yes. trailer trash. What's the other one? Well, I think the other reason it would be, and I, I didn't mean it to be a negative connotation. In fact, I had a better understanding of how different people lived at different levels of society. So I had a better understanding that it was not meant to be derogative. It was just meant to be literal, but it was also to kind of shed light on the fact that maybe we should be treating these people a little bit better. It's a term that's been out there for a long time. You think that there's a lot of stigma around mobile home parks? Yes, I do. What is the stigma? And contrast that for me with the reality. So I did just read a story a couple months ago. There's been some residents here that have been displaced. Yes, that's right. Many mobile home parks in Colorado Mm -hmm. are sort of having to make way for other development. And this is a a storehouse for affordable housing in in the metro area and, and beyond. Yeah, and 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 I definitely I have nothing but empathy for what they're going through because a lot of the tenants that were in our trailer park as well, I mean, they didn't really have anywhere else to go that they could afford. So I, from that aspect, I I totally get their side of it. I don't think it's fair. There certainly should be some parameters in place to protect them so that they're not out of house and home because it's not easy when you're not making a decent wage to immediately find another place. Hey, you know, no problem. We'll just move over here. It's it's very difficult. Plus, it's in a different area where there's not a lot of other places to live, like Broomfield, Aurora, those areas, Mm. they're not as developed. They will be soon now that they're taking over this land. But the other side of it is, you know, as someone that had to do the lawn mowing and had to do the maintenance in the trailer parks, it would be nice if you did mow the lawn. (laughs) It would be nice if you maybe put your trash in a bag. Yeah, that would be great. That would have been nice for me. Especially if it's kids emptying. (laughs) Oh, my God. I know. And they knew that. They knew me. They're like, hi, Angie. Good morning. I'm like, hi. Notice you didn't use a trash bag. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about some of the tenants. I'm actually Mm going to have you read a bit from Chapter 3, where you describe a woman named Florence. Uh, Yes. And she was actually, I want to say she was probably my favorite tenant. She was just fascinating to me. So Okay. Yeah, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. This is Chapter 3, The Tenants. Perhaps the most memorable tenant I knew was Florence. And we were warned never to call her Flo or risk a backhand to the head. Her lot sat smack dab on the south side of her yard, and during the eight years that I lived there, I never saw her sober. She always seemed to be coming and going from her many trips to and from the liquor store or the local watering holes, much to my father's chagrin. You may have not heard her leave, but you always heard her return, because she would take out the metal trash cans and stray cats with her 1970s pale blue rusted-out Cadillac. (laughs) On many occasions, my father decided to perform a more subtle intervention by filling her gas tank with water while she slept off the Colt 45. Florence had held a strange fascination for me and my sister. For starters, I could never figure out her age. She may have only been in her early 60s, but I would place her around 78 in booze years. And she wasn't the kind of sweet old lady who wanted to connect with children or keep butterscotch candies in a faux crystal jar for younger guests. 
Most days, Florence would proudly sport a halter top sans a brassiere and briskly march across her yard in crudely trimmed cut-off jeans, her cheap flip-flops flailing off her feet and her sagging breasts bouncing in cadence to her determination to find an escape through a good time. Why was she her favorite? Um, well, you know, you have to understand, I mean, these these mobile homes or trailers, they, they don't, I wouldn't even call it a yard. It's more like a little side area, mm. you know. So to say that she was in my yard, I mean, she wasn't just my next door neighbor. I mean, she was she was part of my life. I mean, we shared a yard, if you want to call it a yard. So she was, she was just a different person. Um, she didn't, she just seemed angry all the time, but she was so jovial when she left. So she was heading to the bars and she really was trying to escape life. I mean, she wanted nothing to do with anyone. She wouldn't make eye contact. Um, she would just go straight to her car. And I always wondered how different or how much of a good time she was having because she was so miserable whenever I saw her. But I knew she was having a good time because the other tenants would talk about her. So she would be, you know, she'd go to the bars and have a great throw down. I'm like, wow, she was, she had two lives. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Denver author Angie Cavallari. Her new book is called Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. You know, these days there's a lot of cachet to the tiny house movement. Yes. There are TV shows about it. You see these tiny homes in architectural magazines. And I have to say, in our newsroom, we often contrast the the kind of hipster tiny homes mm-hmm. with the original tiny home, which is mo- <laughs> mobile homes. You know, one is vaunted. The other is so stigmatized. How much did you feel that stigma as a kid? Were you embarrassed? Very much. And uh-huh. in fact, I, I did not um, ever talk about where I lived. Very little. I mean, I just never wanted anybody to see my house. It was like, you know, Molly Ringwald, right? She was freaked out. She didn't want Blaine to see where she lived. <laughs> I mean, I, I went through great pains to hide that because I didn't just go to the local public school. I went to private schools that were very, very far away with kids that were from affluent neighborhoods. So I didn't even have like a middle class, regular class. It was just going from pretty low on the totem pole to all of a sudden. I mean, everybody I went to school with had a lot of money. Did they ever find out? Yeah, I'm sure they did. I mean, you know, my parents, it was it was their business. So I'm sure they did. It was also your grandparents' business. Yes, yes. And they bought a mobile home park in a place, I guess, considered the carny capital of the world. Mm-hmm. Carney, yes. those who are a part of carnivals. Mm-hmm. Presumably, this is where they lived when they were not on the carnival circuit. Correct. Where is the carny capital of the world? Gibsonton, Florida. Gibsonton. And it, and it, it, they actually gave themselves that name. So. Okay, I went down a rabbit hole <laughs> with Gibsonton. Did you? This is from Wikipedia. So we, we have to be cautious, but it, it, some of this is confirmed by your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, quote, the town was home to Priscilla the Monkey Girl... <laughs> And the Lobster Boy, Siamese twin sisters, ran a fruit stand here. Uh, That's no longer the term of art, by the way, conjoined twins. Those aren't my words. At one time, Gibsonton was the only post office with a counter for dwarves. Hmm. Gibsonton offered unique circus zoning laws that allowed residents to keep elephants and circus trailers on their front lawns. And I think you witnessed this. Yes. Um, And at least on our street, it was a Ferris wheel. And it was a true story. He had a Ferris wheel. My neighbor did. In fact, I talk about my second book, which I'm working on right now. Um, and I actually played Spin the Bottle for the first time behind a Ferris wheel that you would have seen at any carnival. 
Parked in front of a mobile home. Yes. What a strange and wonderful childhood. <laughs> I think it's partly why I enjoyed so much reading the book. Uh, okay. Um, the subtitle of your book is an 80s memoir. Mm-hmm. 80s music and TV feature prominently. I want to play something for you. Oh, boy. What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. Oh they are actual litigants with a case pending in a California municipal court. Both parties have agreed to dismiss their court cases and have their disputes settled here in our forum, the People's Court. The People's Court. (laughs) Why did this show feature so prominently for you as a kid? So in one of the um, chapters, I do talk about the evictions because we were we also played our own lawyers. So when you evict someone, it's a lengthy process. It's not like, hey, you haven't paid your rent in a month, like you're out. It takes a lot of time. You have to go to court. You have to prove that they haven't paid. Um, you have to try to collect and at least show that you have, you know, gone out, just in earnest, have asked for the money. So we You were w- living people's court. Yes, exactly. That's why my parents were drawn to it. I don't know if they got any legal advice from watching it, but we loved watching it because there were there were dog bites. There were people that would argue about non-payment. And so my parents really got involved. And that was one of the first reality uh, court shows, right? Yeah, I mean, with Judge Wapner. Judge Wapner. This is before Judge Milian. That's right. And Doug Llewellyn. And we Doug love Llewellyn. Doug. Always Doug Llewellyn. Don't take the law into <laughs> your, your own, own hands. hands. You take them to court. <laughs> right. What lessons do you carry with you today that you learned Growing up in mobile home parks. Well, I, I definitely, I, I still struggle with where I fit in society, to be honest with you, because when you're raised in that environment, but you're going to these schools and you see two different worlds, you, you're not sure where you fit in. And I still don't know where I fit in. I mean, I live in the suburbs today, and that's not a sacrifice for my children, but I still don't feel like I fit in there either. I don't think I ever will. But the one thing I took away from was humanity. I mean, these are people. These are not just... Um, you know, in some situations, it's not that they just fell on hard times. Yeah, maybe they chose that, but they weren't lazy or there's not the stigma that they don't care about where they live. Um, and I think that's kind of lost when people think of, um, you know, lower on the totem pole in society or people that live in mobile home parks or trailers. Um, and I don't want them to, I don't want people to look at them that way. It, it gave me a lot of humanity and understanding. Do you think that your experience in the mobile home parks was similar to your siblings? Do you talk about it and kind of compare stories? Um, unfortunately, I'm estranged from my family. Um, I I go into more detail on that in the second book um, than I do in the first one. Hmm. So I, I will tell you that growing up, their attitude was also that they were very embarrassed as well. Um you know, because, again, I mean, it, it, it was not – this was not a retirement community like my grandparents owned. They had more than one trailer park. This was – this. these were not retirees. These were not what you think. These were not nice old ladies with bow crystal jars, you know, with candies. It just wasn't that environment. So. But there is that environment, of course, among mobile home parks. There is. And, yeah. and my one of my grandmother's trailer parks, I loved it. It was full of retirees. And, you know, they loved kids. They didn't see their grandkids that much. And they were snowbirds. And, yeah, they were fantastic. And I saw and I actually saw two different worlds in the casing of mobile home parks. It was wild. Thanks so much for sharing uh, your story with us. And indeed, you you end the first book, Trailer Trash, with a little bit of a cliffhanger. So more to come. Your family did eventually sell the parks. They did. And yeah. then we moved to Gibsonton as well. So, yay. <laughs> Carney capital of the world. Carney capital. <laughs> I could keep going down that rabbit hole. Angie, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Denver author Angie Cavallari has written Trailer Trash, an 80s memoir. We spoke in December. 
Finally today, a new twist on the escape room. You know, those places where you and some friends have to quickly solve riddles so you can escape a room you're trapped in. They've been all the rage recently, and a new one just opened in Fort Collins. The experience will weave together Fort Collins history, antiques, and that twist. The payoff is that once you have escaped the room successfully... A live musical performance greets you on the other side. The project is the brainchild of Colorado composer Gustav Hoyer, who presents his music in intimate, interactive settings like house concerts, art galleries, even a planetarium at one point, and now an escape room. made it to the end. You've escaped the clenches of Colorado Matters. Thanks for being with us. This is CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.